Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Dr. Kelsey Jack, Associate Professor at the Bren School of Environmental Science and Management at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and Director of the Poverty Alleviation Group at the Environmental Market Solutions Lab. She's also co-director of the King Climate Action Initiative at the Poverty Action Lab at MIT. Kelsey works at the intersection of environmental economics and international development, studying how environmental issues shape economic development and vice versa in developing nations. I'll ask Kelsey about some of the experiments she's done on electricity payments and ecosystem service provision in different parts of the world and how her research can inform policymaking on sustainable economic development. Stay with us. All right, Kelsey Jack from the University of California at Santa Barbara. Welcome to Resources Radio. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So Kelsey, we're going to talk today about your work uh, at the intersection of human development and environmental issues. Uh, But we always ask our guests how they got interested in working on environmental issues in the first place. So kind of what steered you into this field? Yeah, thanks. It's a it's a story I actually love to tell. Um, When I was about 14, my parents and I went on a family vacation to Madagascar, which is a little bit of an unusual family vacation, but in the Jack family, that was that was something we did, which I'm very grateful for. And uh, my sort of 14-year-old self observed, I think, for the first time, something that felt morally very gray to me. I think previously, everything that I had witnessed felt clear to me what was right and wrong. And And specifically, what that was is that in Madagascar, one of the things that a lot of rural households do to, to meet their livelihood needs is practice what's called slash and burn agriculture, which means that to clear land for farming, they burn the forest. And this is one of the most unique ecosystems on the planet and also some of the poorest people at that point in my life that I had that I had ever encountered. And it felt to me like this just <laughs> this huge conundrum. What, what do you do? You know, it's it's these households need to feed their families on the one hand. So they need to be destroying the forest to meet their immediate livelihood needs. But on the other hand, the forest that they're destroying is just this incredibly unique uh, natural system. And and it sort of you know made my, my 14-year-old head explode. And, and I think it set up this challenge that I would say is exactly what I continue to work on is trying to understand the tension between immediate human needs in particularly in poorer countries and developing countries um, and the need to preserve the planet that we live on. So it was a really powerful and really formative experience that happened relatively easy on early on, sorry, and, and really kind of set, set me on a track that I feel fortunate to have continued to follow. Yeah, that is so interesting. And it, uh, has such a clear through line to what we're going to talk about today in in your current work, which is you know the intersection of environmental issues and development, particularly in low income nations and low income parts of the world. Um, can you start by giving us a quick overview and maybe an example or two of how, just like in a broad sense, these environmental issues and human development intersect? Obviously, the Madagascar example is a great one, uh, but if you could maybe give us a little bit more flavor for some of the other places where you work. Sure. Yeah. It's to me. It's it's really one of the most kind of compelling challenges is is the fact that the 
poorer you are, the more vulnerable you tend to be to the environment that you live in, and, and the more dependent you tend to be on the having good environmental quality around you. And yet, in some ways, being able to sort of afford good environmental quality, things like things that actually we take for granted a lot of the time, the fact that I can stand up right now and go into the kitchen and turn on the sink and get a a glass of very clean drinking water without thinking about it. It's something that people in many parts of the world can't do, that it's a big part of how they organize their day is, is finding clean sources of water. And even then the water that they are able to find often requiring, you know, trips and hard physical labor to carry it. Oftentimes it falls on women and children that even in, even in that case, even with a huge amount of investment of time and energy, the water quality is bad, leading, of course, then to a disease burden on the household, again, that often falls on younger children. So drinking dirty water, as I'm sure most listeners know, is a you know leading source of, um, of health problems in, in low-income countries and rural settings in particular. And so these are the kinds of things I think that are really important to think about that, again, many of us take for granted because it's just around us. Environmental quality is passes through so many filters, both physical and institutional filters <laughs> right, right. before before we interact with it. And so there's this kind of, you know, I don't know, sort of like perverse relationship between the the poorer you are, the more vulnerable you are to things like poor drinking water quality, poor air quality, et cetera. And yet those are often the populations that are exposed to the worst quality uh, air, water, et cetera. So one example I think that that is very compelling is, is the drinking water one, because again, it's something that's so convenient in our lives and so inconvenient in so many people's lives around the world. Another kind of similar one is cooking technologies, right? So we have the luxury, most of us, of uh, having either gas or electricity piped into our homes that make cooking very clean and very convenient. Uh, you know, you can quibble about whether natural gas in your home is as clean as it as it should be, perhaps. But uh, on the other hand, if you compare that to burning firewood that you're collecting yourself or dung from your livestock, <laughs> natural gas is, is, is pretty clean. And yet, again, for most households, the idea of allocating the little bit of income that they have to paying for gas when you could instead go gather firewood, you know, near your agricultural fields, for example, and burn that for, you know, quote, free, uh, the trade-off is pretty is pretty clear that you're not going to spend the little bit of money that you have on something like improving air quality in your home when you have so many different demands on that little bit of income. So these are the kinds of tensions, I think, that to me are, you know, are really, really challenging to think about what is the role in particular of policy to, to try to intervene of, of sort of public goods that are provided by by the state or by the private sector to try to help lower the cost for low-income households of, of overcoming some of these kind of immediate environmental threats. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we're going to talk about a couple of those um, kind of applications of, of your research in just a second. But before we do that, I think it'll be really useful for people to get a sense of how you do this research, because it's different uh, from what a lot of economists do. So. Um, 
you know, a lot of economists, they spend like inordinate amounts of time looking through data sets and trying to figure out like what might approximate uh, a natural experiment or something close to a natural experiment in the real world. Um, but your work is largely based on experiments that you actually carry out, real world experiments to assess the effects of a certain policy intervention or some other type of intervention. Um, can you give us a, a little bit of flavor for the benefits and drawbacks of using that experimental approach in the work that you do? Sure. No, I'd love to. And it's a, it's something, this approach of using what I'll refer to as, as field experiments or sometimes referred to as randomized controlled trials is something that in development economics over the last decade or so has really, you know, risen to become a, a sort of leading method. It's, it's used by, by many, many development economists and you know, the Nobel Prize in, in 2019 was awarded to three of the, the three development economists who are, who've been leaders in moving this methodology into the mainstream. It's, taking off in a number of different fields in environmental economics it's been a little bit slower to be adopted in for you know for reasons that we can that we can get into but um, but one of the benefits I think of doing work between environment and development economics is being able to borrow methods for example from development economics to try to ask questions that have more environmental content directly. In terms of the the benefits and, and costs of this type of approach, I mean, t to me, the benefits are large. I'm choosing I'm choosing to do the <laughs> method, so I clearly yeah. I'm clearly kind of pro on the benefit side. Um, the the main advantage, of course, is just uh, being able to really cleanly test a hypothesis. So, if we're interested in understanding, going back to the examples we were talking about, how to get cleaner energy sources into people's homes, we could look around for data sets that collect information on what cooking fuels people are using, for example. But we would run into a lot of problems where the people who are using cleaner fuels are are richer, maybe they're better informed about the cost of using dirty fuels, a number of different things like that, which would be pretty hard to overcome to really get sort of a clean estimate of, of you know, why is it that, that people are choosing to adopt particular fuels for cooking, for example, by going out into the world and working with governments or NGOs or other partners on the ground who are actually sort of in the trenches trying to make it possible for people to use cleaner fuels, we can be formulating the hypotheses alongside the very actors who have the potential to, to implement and to make change, but also to overcome the challenge that the researchers face by generating kind of a treatment group and a control group, basically taking the scientific method to the field and saying, let's set up this new government program or this new NGO project in a way that we have some comparable villages, for example, that are getting access to uh, subsidized liquid petroleum gas, for example, and others that are not, and try to then trace out through our own data collection what's actually happening to these households, who's choosing to adopt, how is it affecting health, how is it affecting the local environment, a number of things like that, all of which are pieces of data that in particular in low-income countries can be really hard to come by. So one of the reasons I think that development economists in particular have been really leading the charge on, on this type of methodology is not only to overcome what you were describing of the data set, you, you we're always trying to approximate experimental conditions using existing data, 
that existing data is really, really sparse in a lot of low-income countries. And so, so there's sort of the dual need to be able to have a comparison group that is really valid, but also the need to have really high quality data. Um, to me, those are, you know, those are sort of the, the objective benefits, the, the ones that I could probably convince most of. There's a more kind of personal benefit that I feel, which is just, I really enjoy being really grounded in the work that I do. So I really enjoy having partners on the ground. I really enjoy having to go to the places that I'm studying and interact with the communities and households that I'm interested in learning about, because I think it just makes the research better. I think I, I develop a lot more intuition for what's actually going on, for what's driving choices, for what trade-offs people are really considering, you know, that maybe we've missed in some existing models or something like that, which then can feed back into the research questions. So, you know, so to me, it's it, it makes the research a lot more kind of immediate and compelling and grounded uh, to, to be doing the primary data collection, because you, you really have to think carefully about the questions you're asking to make sure that they make sense to people. Yeah. Um, that's the benefit side. Of course, there are drawbacks. <laughs> the, the biggest drawbacks are these projects are expensive, A, and they take time, B. So it is not the kind of thing where I can go download a data set off the internet, uh, hire a couple of RAs, and have a paper six months later. It's a it's a process. Uh, it requires fundraising. It requires collaboration. It requires managing people on the ground to be doing the data collection. Um, but yeah, the trade-off is that you get to design your own study from the beginning, which I think is is worth it in a lot of cases. Yeah, that's so interesting. And um, and a lot of that dovetails with some of the research that I've done and travel that I've done. Obviously, it's like very different context. But as someone who researches oil and gas issues, you know, having spent time in those communities and getting to know the people who work in the industry and the people who live near the operations is just like so valuable for informing research and making sure that the questions we're asking, as you say, are actually relevant to people's lives. It really is. And and I'll just add one thing, which is that I think for me and for a lot of people who do this type of research, one of the most challenging uh, things, I mean, this is a, this is a small challenge relative to the challenges that many are facing, but with the, with the global pandemic is not being able to go to the field and not being able to, even if some of the work has been able to continue, I haven't been able to, to go. And I feel like that uh, really puts up a little bit of a wedge between the way that I think about a problem sitting in Santa Barbara and the way that I would think about the problem if I got to spend some time on the ground. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's talk now about um, a couple of uh, of the projects you've worked on. So you have a couple of papers on this really interesting issue of prepaid electricity metering in South Africa. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that work and help us understand, you know, what effects it might have uh, of asking people to literally pay as they go uh, for their electricity consumption. Sure, I was really interested to to learn about this technology. So it was not something that I was familiar with until I, again, this is an example of spending time on on the ground can really help. I was I was visiting South Africa uh, for for some other reasons and started having some conversations with people in in Cape Town where they were describing the fact that the majority of households in South Africa and in, in Cape Town where, where the conversation was taking place, uh, 
get their electricity through what is called a prepaid electricity meter. And it's basically exactly what it sounds like. So it's a it's an electricity meter that that acts a little bit like a for, for people who are familiar with it, like a, a prepaid cell phone, uh, a little bit like a coin-operated uh, dryer or something like that. It's basically you put money onto the electricity meter, you go buy, uh, in this case, a, a, a token, like an encrypted uh, token that represents the, the value of what you've purchased. You punch a code into the meter and it unlocks the number of kilowatt hours that you've paid for. And then you start using your appliances and the meter ticks down based on your consumption. And when you run out of credit on the meter, your lights go out, you know, so it's, it's, it's very, you know, in some ways it's a, it's a very basic technology, but one that we're used to in other domains. It's, and if you think about the way that we pay for electricity as a service, in some ways it's a, it's a sort of artifact of how historically electricity was provided. There's no particular reason that electricity needs to be a service as opposed to a commodity in terms of how we how we purchase it and yet you know we're we're all very very used to the idea that you consume up front and then you receive a bill that reflects what it is that that you've consumed for example over the past month so what the what the prepaid meter does is just sort of flip that on its head it just turns it basically turns electricity into something more like a commodity it's more like you know you go buy a, a gallon of milk and when you're out of milk you're out of milk and it and we're sort of used to trusting consumers to keep track of how much milk they have and it's not it's not a problem if if you run out of milk that's kind of on you to to figure out how to how to get more milk but you know for electricity we're just not used to that and so i think the prepaid technology feels like a really big shift the main reason that it gets used in particular in in low income countries is because well for two two main reasons one is that in a lot of settings it's very difficult to enforce uh, bill payment so in, in settings where there's not uh, an ability to have a credit history, where it's challenging um, to deliver bills, where it's challenging to cut people off if they're not paying their bills, uh, to enforce in various ways, then having the enforcement just operate through the prepayment system is extraordinarily useful for the utility company. It sort of takes this whole burden of billing off of the utility company. And so that is really the, the sort of core advantage uh, to this technology. And if you read, it's less, slightly less important in South Africa, but for example, in, in India, the fraction of bills that get paid is something on the order of half. Uh, and so, and so in a setting like that, you can imagine the, the challenges that arise where the utility then really has two choices. Either they can increase tariffs, which affects the fraction of people who do pay, Right. But then the fraction of people who are not paying can still get away with not paying their bills. And in fact, maybe increasing tariffs leads to more people not paying their bills. Um, second, actually, there are going to be three things. Second, they can lower the service quality. Right. And you see that in a lot of settings where electricity supply is very intermittent. Right. That there'll be certain hours of the day where people are getting electricity flowing through their meter. But many hours of the day when when electricity is out, uh, that's a very common phenomenon. And then the third thing is that, and this also is, is very common, that utility companies can choose to just not connect poor households in the first place, right? And so if the utility company realizes that this is the type of consumer that's not going to be profitable for us because we're going to constantly have to chase them to pay their bills, 
we just aren't going to connect them in the first place. And so you see, for example, in a lot of parts of Africa, very high connection charges that a, a customer has to pay a lot just to get onto the grid. And that's a way, there are a variety of re reasons that that exists. But one of the benefits of that from the utility company's perspective is it screens out the types of households that are less likely to be able to pay down the road. Um, there, there are other reasons as well, but that's, but that's arguably one of them. So all three of these sort of artifacts of not paying the bill uh, are really problematic for consumers as well. Right. So it's not just a utility company that suffers if consumers, on the other hand, are either facing higher tariffs, facing worse service quality or not getting access in the first place, then sort of the old system, the postpaid system has some pretty obvious drawbacks. And so, you know, in theory, what the prepaid um, electricity can do is help overcome some of these issues. So while on the one hand, the consumer is now responsible for keeping the lights on instead of the utility company being responsible for keeping the lights on, on the other hand, it potentially addresses some of these issues with uh, non-payment and with access. Right. That's really interesting. So given those, you know, mostly benefits that you describe to this approach, at least in this particular context, would you kind of recommend that pay-as-you-go metering become uh, more widely adopted in developing countries, or are there other trade-offs that we should think about? There are a few other trade-offs, and I think there's a lot more room for research on this topic. One of the trade-offs is that for customers that are that are quite poor and that may face really volatile income having to pay up front removes one of the benefits of, of billing, which is that there, it sort of helps smooth a little bit. Billing is basically a form of, of credit for the consumer. So there may be a little bit of extra hardship on, on particularly uh, poor households, which I think deserves, certainly deserves further research. The other really big drawback is that it's very hard to do any kind of uh, real-time pricing on a prepaid meter because people are paying in advance. And so really if a, if a utility company can leapfrog over a prepaid meter and go straight to a smart meter, then that gives them the capability both of doing pay-as-you-go or doing more kind of dynamic or real-time pricing. Um, and so, you know, so, so one of the drawbacks is I think that it's a technology that locks uh, utilities into to static pricing, which, you know, has some drawbacks. It's probably a, a different conversation, but um, but that that those are some limitations. So depending on what the trajectory for a utility company actually looks like, uh, those kinds of limitations may outweigh the benefits that we were just talking about. Right. That's really interesting. I hadn't thought about the um, uh, sort of demand side uh, of things. That's that's super interesting. Um, so let's switch now, and I wanted to ask you about a different stream of research that you've been working on for quite some time, which is um, this idea of paying households for providing ecosystem services, uh, such as conserving forests. This sort of goes back to the Madagascar example that you started us with. Um, can you tell us a little bit about this topic and what you've learned through the experiments that you've carried out in different countries, which I think include Malawi, Zambia, and India? Sure. Yeah, it's um, this idea of paying households to uh, sort of do activities, typically land use based activities that generate positive externalities. So good, 
good externalities for the rest of the world through ecosystem services is is something that um, I think a lot of people in the environmental community are, are really excited about. And yet there's really not been a lot of very rigorous research to try to figure out how cost effective these types of approaches are on the one hand, and even more importantly, and I think more interestingly from, from my perspective, um, how to use a lot of what we know from economics about how do you design contracts uh, to maximize the benefits that come out of them. Um, and so a lot of the work that I've done has really focused on sort of that latter branch of how can we take this kernel of an idea and try to really think about leveraging what we know from economics and other kind of contexts to improve contract design to make it appropriate in particular for the types of settings and the types of populations and monitoring limitations and a number of other things like that. So to me, this is sort of this like boundless area for interesting economic research. But at the same time, again, it's it's really applied work that involves trying to think about the populations. And of course, the more complicated a contract, the harder it's going to be to get people to trust it and to be willing to take it up. So I've been working for the last uh, couple of years on a project in India where we're using this type of approach not to think about forest conservation, but actually to think about creating incentives for farmers not to burn their fields. One of the uh, big environmental issue in, in India is the fact that after harvest to clear their fields, farmers use fire, which generates just vast amounts of pollution every year. And it's been a really intractable problem to deal with through things like fines and prohibitions and stuff. And so what we wanted to do is try to test out, well, could you create positive incentives? Uh, and that introduced all sorts of really interesting kind of contract design challenges. And one of the things we tested out in this field experiment that's just uh, just wrapped up is comparing a contract where you just pay a farmer conditional on not burning at the end. So kind of a classic payment for ecosystem services type of contract versus a contract where you give some of the payment up front. And the rationale for that is twofold. One, an upfront payment builds trust. And two, an upfront payment can address liquidity constraints. So the fact that farmers might need a little bit of cash to be able to, for example, hire a piece of equipment or hire some labor that would allow them to avoid burning that year. And what we're seeing, this is still preliminary, but we are seeing that those contracts that allowed for that upfront payment actually seem to be performing better and solving this really challenging uh, kind of problem in actually a pretty cost-effective way. Yeah, that's super interesting. One of the other applications of this work that sort of popped immediately to my head that I imagine some listeners will also be interested in is the implications of this stream of work for things like carbon offsets, which are, you know, can be very controversial. Uh, well, they are very controversial in many settings. Uh, so, you know, the example would be a landowner who is paid to conserve their forests uh, to uh, allow that forest to continue taking CO2 from the atmosphere. What, what does your work tell us about those uh, kind of markets? I think that those kinds of markets certainly have potential, and this is actually a, a kind of setting where I would argue that the type of research methodology that we've been talking about, having a really rigorous research design so that you know what the kind of counterfactual or what the world would have looked like absent the payments, is absolutely crucial. 
Yeah. Right. So we uh, one of the big concerns about these types of programs is that you end up just paying for forest that would have been left standing anyway, or you end up just paying for, you know, what economists would call, you know, inframarginal conservation or what uh, what the environmental community would call non-additional uh, conservation. And so so one of the things that a randomized trial or a field experiment can do is is really give you that comparison group so that you can actually quantify and measure how much additional forest was conserved or how many new trees were planted, whereas otherwise you're relying on baselines, you're relying on other types of, of, of measurement tools that may be a little bit less clean. And then there's, I think, using findings from from those kinds of studies, you can start to think as well about different kinds of scenarios where if a contract is only, for example, lasting for three years or five years or some relatively short time period, what are the costs and benefits or what are the conservation impacts, the tons of CO2 sequestered, for example, if, for example, the farmer then or the landowner then immediately clears all of their land, or if they leave it in place for another few years, but revert back to whatever the baseline levels of clearing were. So so you can use that sort of trial period where you have really clear measurement to set up sort of the, the worst case scenario in terms of the CO2 impacts, right? So worst case, you're only delaying clearing by a few years, but even that for a stock pollutant, can be important. So, you know, so I think these types of like, the more we're doing really careful measurement and really careful quantification, the more this can help to address some of the concerns that have been asserted about these are just temporary uh, programs or they're really not additional or other things like that, where we can be pretty conservative about what assumptions we need to put in place and measure basically a lower bound on CO2 uh, impacts. And in many cases, especially if, if programs are happening in low-income countries where households would not be making a lot of money off the land anyway, the amount of money that has to be paid to change behavior is actually not huge, you know, because the, the outside option is not all that lucrative for people. And so and so it can actually be fairly cost effective, I think, is is what we're starting to see. And it's a I think it's a it's really an area as well where the more light we can shine on it, the more the discussion will start to turn to a fact based one as opposed to uh, an opinion based one. Yeah, that's those are all such great points. And hopefully, you know, it's kind of getting some of our listeners excited about uh, exploring some of these research topics themselves, because as you say, there's so much, so much we don't know, and so much that we could know, uh, particularly using these, these methods that you've been working through. Yeah, definitely. So, um, Kelsey, there are so many more questions, uh, as that uh, last comment implies that I would love to ask you and love to spend time on, but we're, we're pretty much out of time. And so I want to jump now to our uh, last question that we ask all of our guests, which is the top of the stack. So asking you to recommend something that you've read or watched or heard uh, related to the environment, even if tangentially, that you think is cool and, and you'd recommend to our listeners. And I'll start with a book that came out maybe six months ago that I'm reading now by Kim Stanley Robinson. It's called Ministry for the Future. This is uh, an author that we've um, heard of before. He's written a variety of books uh, that you could sort of think of as climate fiction or cli-fi. Uh, and we're actually going to have him on the show in a few months to talk about this new book. So I'm reading it right now. Uh, it's called Ministry for the Future. It starts off in India with actually a really, really intense uh, scene from the near future, 
Uh, it's a bit disturbing, uh, but it's actually a really enjoyable book. So I'd recommend it to people. Ministry for the Future. Um, how about you, Kelsey? What's on the top of your stack? Great. Well, I'm also going to recommend something uh, that came out not not too long ago. But what I will do is draw a little bit on on development economics. So the researchers that I referred to earlier, uh, who won the Nobel Prize for their work on randomized controlled trials and field experiments, uh, two of them came out with a book recently called Good Economics for Hard Times. This is Abhijit Banerjee and Esther Duflo, who are co-founders of the Poverty Action Lab at, at MIT, which has been doing a lot of the really great development economics work in this area. And this book talks through a lot of the big challenges in economic development around the world. And what to me is really exciting about this is that they devote a whole chapter of this book to thinking about climate change. So this is actually something that recently has has been a pretty big shift where people who are really working on development, on poverty alleviation around the globe, have come to realize that you really have to think about the environment as well. And in particular, you have to think about climate change as well, that these are no longer separate issues, that it's no longer a question of, you know, worry about the planet on the one hand and worry about uh, impoverished populations on the other hand, that these two things completely go hand in hand. And so I think for for listeners who are interested in in learning a little bit more about other challenges in, in development, uh, this is a really excellent uh, introduction to evidence-based uh evidence-based work in this area but but also to focus on that uh chapter which i think is actually a really kind of hopeful sign of of including uh intense focus on how climate and development interact yeah absolutely great points and great recommendation i totally want to read that too um so i'll have to add it to my stack as well um, well, once again, Kelsey Jack from the University of California at Santa Barbara, thank you so much for joining us on Resources Radio and telling us about your work. I know we've only scratched the surface, but hopefully it's really whetted people's appetites to learn more about the work that you do and the methods that you use and this, this entire world of research. Well, thanks so much for having me. I've really enjoyed it. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org slash support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.